The scripture for this morning comes to us from a few verses in Proverbs. I'll read while you follow. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 3. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Chapter 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Chapter 21, verse 15. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Chapter 31, verse 9. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Heather. Uh, good morning, everybody. Really good to see you this morning. Thank you for choosing to be here to worship uh, Jesus with us. Uh, you should have been here for the first hour. That's definitely the service for the extroverts. Like some churches have a contemporary service and a traditional one for the old people, one for the kids. We do one for the introverts and one for the extroverts. So if you're, if you're an introvert, this is, this is when you want to be here. There was no room to be in your own little space uh, in, the, in the first one. So glad you guys can spread out and be in your own bubble if you need it this morning. Let's pray and we'll get right down to work. Jesus, we thank you for pursuing us. We thank you for rescuing us, doing the work necessary uh, so that we who were rebels, who had run hard and fast from the God who created us could be forgiven and adopted in, accepted, fully loved and forever kept sons and daughters. Thank you for being perfectly righteous in our place and for dying the death in, in our place, the death that should have been ours, so the, the consequences of our rebellion. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. You could have sent him in judgment, but you sent him in mercy so that we could have life. And Father, we thank you for giving us your spirit to bring our hearts to life, to open our ears to your voice, and to actually change our hearts so that we find joy in submitting to you and joy in obeying and so, Father, I just pray that you would again this morning do what you've done for us already through the Spirit, that open our ears, help us to hear your voice clearly, and incline our hearts to submit gladly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this week is our last Sunday morning in the book of Proverbs. Next week, we'll begin a journey through the Old Testament prophet of Micah. I'm really looking forward to that, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm really looking forward to wrapping up our series in Proverbs this morning. And here's our big idea. Justice is a primary value in our father's family. It is meant to be personally formative for us, and it is meant to be publicly pursued. So three ideas in that sentence. The first that we'll look at is, in our father's family, our family, justice is primary. Secondly, justice is meant to be personally formative. It's not just an idea. It's not just a value that we say we have. It is really actually meant to shape our lives. And third, justice is to be publicly pursued by our family. A pastor that I have deep respect for, he pastors in Chicago, his name is Charlie Dates, recently said this. He said, today we are witnessing the emergence of a new generation of Americans that are fascinated with justice. That's true. Uh, our public discourse has been dominated with conversations about justice, social justice, racial justice, all kinds of justice. So he's right. But he says, they have not met the author of righteousness. And so they are trying to get justice on the streets apart from understanding righteousness taught in our churches, and they're never going to find it. 
But at the same time, we have a church that is preaching righteousness, but will not, in many cases, fight for justice. Both of these are insufficient, he says. Both are incomplete. Neither represents the full scope of God's call upon us. The church should not be silent about injustice because her Lord is the God of righteousness. And in this way, he says, justice is not a social construct. Justice is a biblical, theological, and Christian idea. Now, before we really get into it today, I just want to acknowledge the tension that may be present in our room. For some of you, as followers of Jesus, you become immediately suspicious the moment a pastor or a church begins to talk about justice. You're curious if the conversation is going to be framed biblically. You're curious if it's going to be framed culturally. So there's, I just want to acknowledge that there can be some suspicions. Also, for some of you in the room, you already just kind of feel like, man, we talk about justice too much. Uh, This conversation's not framed by or influenced by the gospel. Like we're just talking about uh, justice because the culture's talking about it. Like what about God and what he's saying? Some of you feel like, man, justice is only a hard issue. It's not about groups or systems or structures. So you're like, man, I've just kind of had it up to here, like good with justice. So I just want to acknowledge that some of you may feel that way this morning. Others of you that I want to acknowledge, you may feel like, man, we don't talk about justice enough. It's all over the Bible, like every page. Look at the crisis of justice that our culture is in. Everybody's trying to find answers Don't we have a definitive word? Like, hasn't our Father spoken clearly about justice? Let's talk about it more and all the time. So I want to acknowledge you as well. And to every one of you, whether you're suspicious, or you've had it up to here, or you want more, I love you. And I'm your pastor. And there's space for you in our family. And we want to have conversations. And we're not... We're not placing expectations upon you to be something or say something that you feel you're just not ready for yet. So there is space for you here, and I love you. And I'm glad that I'm your pastor, and I'm glad that you're in in this family. This can be a controversial topic if we allow it to be. Now, some churches seek controversy for the sake of controversy. I'll just say something controversial. Some churches have really gone hard after this whole idea of having to mask up as being a form of persecution. I'm not feeling it. I, don't, I just don't feel that. To me, it feels like we're running towards controversy for the sake of, of controversy. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. So I get that this is controversial. Can be. Can be. I should say it that way. But that's not why I'm talking about it. We, we don't do that here. That is really gospel unhealth. We, we don't just go after controversy for the sake of controversy. But on the other hand... When something is controversial, or potentially so, it's really unhealthy to stay away from it, right? Like, if our Father has spoken clearly, and He's spoken about all things in life, then certainly He has something to say about controversial matters, and we would be unwise, and it would be unhealthy for us never to touch something that might be controversial to us, right? So we don't want to be that church either. Our Father has spoken a clear word, but you wouldn't know it by listening to Christians, Here's a meme that I encountered twice this week. I encountered it in my reading about justice. And um, have you guys have watched this movie, right? I'm not going to point you out, and I know you're in the room. One of you, one of my good friends in the room, asked about watching this with his family this week. And so to the person who I'm not looking at right now, the answer is yes, do it. You keep using that word, and I don't think you know what it means. I listened to a sermon... Uh, entitled Biblical Justice versus Social Justice is about an hour long, okay? Just put that in perspective. My my sermons are short, okay? (laughs) He invoked this term to suggest that Christians who use the term social justice have no idea what they're talking about, okay? Fair point. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, On the other hand, I I read a, a scholar. He's a seminary professor. He's got a blog, and he writes a lot about social justice. And his point simply was... um, collectively, we're using a lot of different words, and we're not careful in what we're saying. And so I don't think those of you over there saying we shouldn't use the term social justice really know what you're talking about either, right? So it's, it's kind of coming from both sides. So I just want, I want to acknowledge uh, that tension, and yes, you should go watch this movie. 
I think that tension was captured really well by a pastor in New York City, former pastor, he's retired now, Tim Keller. And he said this, he said, guys, listen, in the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and my favorite word, attractive understanding of justice. It's attractive, it's beautiful. He goes on to say that biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives. True, true statement. Uh, However, even though they differ, uh, biblical justice does not ignore the concerns of any kind of secular approach to justice. Biblical justice is comprehensive enough. But then he goes on to say this. He says this ignorance, oh, before, he says this, yet Christians know little about biblical justice despite its prominence in the scriptures. And we're not going to do a scripture-wide survey today. We're just going to stay in Proverbs. We're going to be faithful to that. This is just a sermon series in Proverbs. We're not leaving Proverbs. But I want to show you, it's not just prominent in all of Scripture, it's even prominent in our little book of Proverbs. So Keller goes on to say, guys, listen, this ignorance is having two effects. First, large swaths of the church still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. Second, many younger Christians recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practice and their lives. He's right. Now, again, I want to recognize the potential for disagreement, even within this room, right? We did this in the first gathering. Let's do it again. So I want to establish our common ground first, because even though we may disagree on definitions or whether or not we should use certain words, as followers of Jesus, and especially in this family, I know our family, here's here's what we have in common. We believe our Father has spoken definitively, right? Do we agree with that? We affirm that as followers of Jesus. And we affirm that we have our Father's definitive voice right here. And so we would affirm together that whatever he says is authoritative over us, yeah? Okay, so we have that in common. That's our common ground. And we also have in common that whatever our dad says to us through the word, we are to be formed by or submit to. Do we have that in common too? Okay, so with that common ground, even though there's potential for controversy and division, I'm not scared. I'm confident we can press into the word and be gracious to each other and sit under our dad's voice and pray that the spirit would increase our desire to be formed by that. We, we can do this. We can wade into controversial waters safely uh, because of our father and this common ground that we have. So let's do that. Um, I'm going to read for you. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to open your Bible, Proverbs 1. And then I'm going to just flip the page and read from chapter 2 to get us started. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So here's the beginning of our dad's speech. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in what now? Righteousness, which is a word closely related to justice. I'm going to show you that justice and equity. So when dad opens his mouth growing up and he's got something to say, the most important piece of what he's going to say is generally going to come out. It's going to be revealed in the opening lines of what he's got to say, right? So it's primary. Now flip over to chapter two. And just for context, because I'm going to start you off in verse six, chapter two is again, the dad speaking is saying, son, it's life or death. Whether you receive my words, you got to receive my words. You got to listen because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point you to the God who created you and help you live in what he calls the fear of the Lord, which is a really healthy and life-giving relationship with your creator. You, you, if you're not living in the fear of the Lord, you're, you're not alive. You're, your heart is, is dead. Okay, So living in the fear of the Lord, and he's going to say you get what, the, the pathway to that is wisdom, but God also gives wisdom. So as you gain the fear of the Lord, you're going to gain something of value. What is that thing? Verse 6 The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Now notice verse 9. Then you will understand. You'll know it. You will understand righteousness and justice and equity. And notice how dad speaks about these things. These are good paths Righteousness, justice, and equity. That is, that, is, that is the good path. So again, our big idea, justice is a primary value in our father's family. It's meant to be personally formative and publicly pursued. So let's start with primary. We know that, just, that Proverbs as a book is a collection of talks from a dad and a mom 
given to their son primarily, but by implication to a daughter, to their children, so that they would grow up in the fear of the Lord, they would grow up in wisdom, and essentially that they would be the men and the women that God has created them to be. That's, that's Proverbs. So at the very outset of this talk, our father, the father here in his opening line says to his son, son, in order to be this man, you need to receive instruction in what? Justice, righteousness and justice and equity. Now, you think, all right, it's not that important to dad. It's just in the opening lines. John, you only read for us from chapter one and two. How do I know it's really through his entire talk like you said it is? Well, let me just show you. There were three words that we saw, righteousness, justice, equity. Here's a screenshot of righteous or righteousness throughout Proverbs. Not all of the occurrences, but most of them. Notice the range and numbers where they're found in the book, start to finish, okay? Begins, ends, and throughout. And you're like, yeah, that's not very much, John. All right, true, not very much. So let's hit justice. Boom, quite a few more, and that's not all the occurrences, okay? So not only does dad begin with justice, and Proverbs 28, that's not the last one. There are more. He finishes with justice. It's all through the center of the book as well. So it's not just primary at the beginning. It permeates. And then one more. Here's equity. Not as many for equity, but that word is just not used as commonly in the Old Testament. But there are the occurrences in Proverbs. Okay, so righteousness, justice, and equity. Dad leads with it. He constantly reminds. It's first in one of the most frequent themes. So you might say of our dad that justice is a really big deal to him. It's, it's his passion. Our father's passionate about justice. He cares about justice. He hates injustice. He values it. It's primary for our family. So again, the book of Proverbs is given to a young son, a young kid to help them grow up. Guys, it serves the same role for us today. Because who are we? We are adopted in sons and daughters. We were rebels. So now we're learning to be the sons and daughters we were created to be. Proverbs serves the exact same purpose for us that it did for this kid 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, okay? It helps us grow up into the men and women that God designed for us to be as image bearers of Jesus Christ. Same role. So let's look at these words. In the Hebrew, there are two words that primarily inform our understanding of justice. Both of them appear here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then we get a third bonus word, equity, that I already pointed out. So righteousness, or sedek in the Hebrew, simply means to be right, or it means rightness, okay? A state of being right. Now, when you see righteousness in the Bible, it's primarily about being in a right relationship with God, like you, and you, and you, and you. It's a very personal word about being in a right relationship with God. But it's not just about private morality, this word righteousness is concerned with relational and societal ethics. It's concerned with a rightness of life that will flow from being in a right relationship with God. And so the word righteousness also refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all relationships in their family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. Okay, so rightness between a person and God, and then lived out horizontally, rightness with other people. Then we have justice, or in the Hebrew, mishpat. And justice most basically means to treat people equitably. Justice is concerned with the preservation of rights, God-given rights, and it's concerned with the punishment of wrongdoing. Kind of those two uh, ends of the spectrum and then all things in between. That's justice. And then we get our bonus word equity thrown in. Equity simply means evenness or level or smooth. You might even see it translated as smooth. Equity concerns itself with um, a leveling of inequality. So if we see inequality, equity goes about the business of leveling out the inequality. So some common words that you might hear in our culture nowadays is outcomes or starting points. Biblical equity actually does concern, concern itself with the equitable nature of our starting points in culture, but it also really concerns itself with the outcomes and it asks the hard questions about why are starting points different and why are outcomes different? That's equity, okay? 
Now, a guy named Kevin Witzma, we, we need to kind of define justice. He, he defines it broadly like this. He says, justice is the broadest term for describing what ought to be. Just That's it, really. Justice is what ought to be by God's design. In Proverbs, we see kind of four elements of this justice, and here they are on the screen. Retributive justice, restorative justice, distributive justice, and procedural justice. So retributive justice rewards those who do good or punishes those who do wrong. Restorative justice is concerned with making whole the victims of injustice and reconciling offenders and victims where possible, okay? So we need to push on this a little bit because some, some uh, voices in our, our circles would say, justice is only ever concerned with my heart and it's not concerned with, with systems or structures or groups of people. But biblical justice is very concerned with systems and structures and groups of people. Sometimes we get nervous because you're like, all you do is put people in categories of oppressed and oppressors. Um, and while it's true that we should be careful how we categorize, and we can't just categorize everything, does not the Bible frequently refer to the oppressed and the oppressor? And th th these, are, these are biblical categories. And then we have restorative justice. Oh, we did that. Distributive justice, giving to each according to what is right and procedural justice, following processes and policies that, the, that themselves are fair, equitable, and right. So these are biblical categories of justice. A pastor in D.C., his name is Tabidi Anyabwile. That's why people just call him Pastor T. People also call him Pastor Teddy Bear because he is a, the gospel has shaped his heart so much. He's one of the most gentle men. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I listened to him on a podcast. I think it was Theology in the Raw, I think was the name of the podcast. And they were talking about justice, and the host was kind of pointing out, well, Tabidi, this dude disagrees with you, this dude disagrees with you, I thought you were friends, blah, 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 kind of trying to pull him out. You know what Tabidi did every time? Man, that dude, he's a good friend of mine. He loves Jesus. He's got good character. He loves his family. He, 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 he would refuse to be baited into any kind of statement publicly that would be seen as a denigration of character. Kind, gentle man. Strong man. Tabidi says, justice is doing the right thing. Love this definition. To the right extent, for the right people, in the right way, at the right time, according to a right interpretation of God's word. It's a very, very biblically sound definition of justice. If, don't worry about trying to keep up with writing it down. We can, we can email these notes if you'd like them. Now, this is really interesting. Our two Hebrew words, siddek and mishpat, or righteousness and justice, in the Bible, they're tied together three dozen times. So 36 times these words occur together. When they are, scholars would say the best English expression to convey the combined meaning of these two terms taken together is, you ready? Because this makes some of you uncomfortable, is social justice. It's social justice. Social justice then would be not only a biblical concept, but also a subset of biblical justice. Now again, some of you are uncomfortable with that term, and again, I just wanna to say to you, I understand and I appreciate your concern. In fact, you're not the only one who might be concerned. Here's, here's a guy, a seminary professor who blogs about this, Michael Agapito, Agapito. He says, social justice has often become politicized and come to mean something that's far from true social justice. And he's right. And I recognize that he's right. And so I want to say to those of you who just have an aversion to the term, I see you and I hear you, and I assume the best of you, and here's what I know of, to be true of you. You have a really high view of God's word, and you care deeply that we use words the way that God used them, and that we define them correctly, and you, your concern is born out of a desire to be faithful to our dad and to his revealed word. And so I see you, and I respect you, and I affirm your concern. Kevin DeYoung expressed some concern as well, pastor in North Carolina. He said, I have my concerns with the term social justice and with all that it connotes. Because for us as followers of Jesus, it's kind of a squishy term. He says the term has no shared meaning or at least no precise definition that we all agree on. Now, to be fair though, uh, cult it's true culturally too, but you can go places like the Oxford Dictionary and find a definition. So, so here it is, and here's why it makes some of you feel uncomfortable. You turn to Oxford and it says social justice um, in term is a term that applies to distribution or redistribution of wealth, 
distribution of opportunity, distribution of privilege, and distribution of um, all things within a society, right? So, so we have seen and read definitions like that. But here's what Kevin DeYoung proposes, and I would propose to you as the pathway we should take. What if we press on for a less culturally controlled and more biblically defined understanding of what social justice is? I think that's wise. And here's what he says next. He says, depending on our definition, social justice and the gospel may be miles apart, or they may be as close as loving God by obeying his commands and loving people. And to that, I say, yes, I think he's right, and I think that's wise. So we've kind of demonstrated how biblically or theologically the terms of justice and righteousness and equity kind of combine to communicate what, what, the, what we would use, or the term that we would use is social justice, right? So it's, that is a term that is deeply rooted in, in the Bible. But let me just show you this from history, too, how it's, it's our term. I'm just get a little selfish here. Like, these are, these are our words, our family words. Historically, social justice ideas and definitions have proven to be something like a confluence of rivers. Let me explain what I mean, and then I'm going to show you a picture to just really help us, help us see this. So in the 1840s, like somewhere around where Ron Coyo was given birth, you know, like given life, like way back in the day. I'm just kidding. He's my older brother and older brother. Um, <laughs> A Jesuit priest, uh, Taparelli, but his first name was Luigi, so let's use that because that's fantastic. Luigi, he popularized the term social justice. Now, this, this Jesuit priest by the name of Luigi based almost all of his work on Thomas Aquinas just years ago. His life was very shaped by Aquinas. And so in Aquinas' work and then in Luigi's work, their work was, it started with God at the center and, and all their philosophy and idea their starting point was a divine and God and his, his word. And so it was God-centric, if you will. And so by 1931, almost 100 years later, the term social justice has been widely adopted in Christian circles to speak to the diverse applications of biblical justice from the scriptures. It was our word. It was our term. And that's why, have you heard of John Stott? A pastor, he's no longer alive, but very... Um, a well-known pastor, uh, John Stott would go on to say this. He was influenced by Luigi's work, and he said, the cross is a revelation of God's justice as well as of his love. That is why the community of the cross should concern itself with social justice, okay? So as it turns out, based on what we've learned so far, social justice as an idea and a definition is deeply rooted in God's word, but historically, it also bears out that it is rooted in Christian origins. But now, you're like, John, but that's not the whole story. You're right, that's not the whole story. This is not going to turn into a history lesson. I just want, I need to say one thing in kind of snapshot, like fortune cookie size, bite size. In the 70s, 1970s, uh, a philosopher and avowed atheist by the name of John Rawls wrote a, a book entitled A Theory of Justice. And so it was in this generation, and Rawls is just one of many names. I can't, again, it's not a history lesson, but he's one of the more prominent. Social justice as a term came to be identified with liberal, secular, political philosophy. So rather than being God-centered, man-centered, right? So different approach, different ideas, different words, different solutions. Maybe seeing some of the same brokenness, but defining it differently and proposing different solutions, talking about justice differently. And of course, of course, if we have different starting points like that, outcomes of like successful applications of justice are going to be different, right? And that's what happened. The waters were muddied. And so human reason came to serve as the starting point. And I would submit to you, I would gladly agree with you if you're concerned about that, so, that term social justice, you're like, but John, Rawls' work and other people like him, just it defines the conversation today, right? So that's why I'm concerned about it. Right. You're right. His stream, if you will, flooded Luigi's stream. So let's, let's get a picture here is a confluence in a river where one tributary has been flooded and it's just dirty and cloudy water and the other one flows crystal clean until they, they meet ways. And so I just want to say, admittedly, the confluence of these two rivers related to social justice is a mess. It's a mess. It's cloudy. The, mud, the, the water's been muddied. And because of that, Guys, listen, if you don't like the term social justice or you just feel convictionally you shouldn't use it because it's got an unclear meaning and you want to be faithful to God's word and all of that, I'm tracking. 
I got no problem with that, no harbor. This is not going to be a church that forces you to employ vocabulary, use words that you're just not comfortable using for your own personal conviction. So if you feel like the water's too muddy, great, water's too muddy. But I do want you to understand this, please. This river, while muddied currently, belongs to our family. This is our river. And if you, if you were to track the river upstream before you get to this muddy confluence, there's a source behind that clean water. And it is a beautiful, life-giving fountain that flows with the waters of justice and grace and mercy. And you know who owns that fountainhead? Our dad. That's our water right there. And it is a beautiful, life-giving river. It's beautiful. Social justice as a biblical concept, some would say, is not a term that we should abandon without a fight. Kind of like this. Uh, let's think about marriage. Over the last decade, our culture has come to think of marriage and we kind of redefine some things, husband, wife, different terms, marriage, different terms. Let me just ask you, have any of you stopped using the word marriage? Have any of you stopped referring to yourself as a husband or a wife, given some of the cultural confusion? Why not? Why have you not changed? Because you're like, dog, turn to Genesis. That's our family word. That's the definition. Like, this meaning matters and it's beautiful. So, that's our word. You're not going to take it and make it mean something else. Or what about human sexuality? Last 30, 40, 50 years, man, lots of changes culturally from the time my mom was a kid to the time I was a kid to the time my kids are kids. Lots more changes coming. Have any of you stopped using the words male, female, gender, sex? Have we stopped using, talking about it? No, why? Those are dad's words, man. That's his river, right? The, the, so no. So if that's our approach to other words, why would we treat the words social justice any differently if it's our river? But if that's you and that's your conviction, as opposed to the other that I just addressed, if you do want to use the term social justice, I need you for the good of our other family members to acknowledge publicly that the water's muddy and it's clear. So don't be proud don't be cocky, don't be arrogant, don't view them as lesser because they're not. Let's acknowledge that the water's cloudy. People have legitimate reasons for not wanting to use the terminology. Let's understand the importance of, if you're gonna use the word social justice, you better define it. Like, make sure, make sure you communicate clearly what you mean from God's word and be discerning in what you read. But most of all, guys, posture of Christ, be gentle. Let's be kind with each other. Let's be gentle. Some Christian leaders today would say that we don't need the term social justice. It's bad. It only belongs to the culture. We only need the term biblical justice. I just want to submit to you that I believe that's a category error. I don't think that's a helpful statement. And Joe Carter says it this way. He says, biblical justice includes all forms of God-ordained justice, including rectifying justice that belongs to the government, or what we'd call public or legal justice, as well as justice between individuals, what could be called inter-individual justice, and justice involving organizations and groups, or what we'd call social justice. He says, social justice seeks especially to protect the vulnerable, including the very young, the very old, the unborn, the termini terminally ill, the disabled, the poor and the popular, unpopular. Guys, that's a beautiful statement, and that is our river. It's beautiful. Biblical justice is a thing of beauty. We need to define social justice biblically, though, right? I was talking, texting to my brother back in the States last week, and he's like, yeah, John, so what's your definition of social justice anyway? Like, there's some space between how he and I approach these things, so he's like, define it for me. I said, all right, I'll get back to you. I haven't gotten back to him yet, but I said, you, I'm Never mind. I said, I dedicate a sermon to you this week. You can watch the sermon later. Here's a really helpful initial definition that we can work with. Kevin DeYoung says, let's take biblical social justice to mean something like treating people equitably, working for systems and structures that are fair, and looking out for the weak and the vulnerable. Now, that's not complete. It's beautiful. I think social justice framed biblically is bigger than that, but that's a really, really good starting point that we can work with. Now, I want to talk about our posture again as Christians, because within Christianity, there are voices that I would call, um, they, it's a posture of alarmism, right? So some have taken it, taken it upon themselves to be alarmist as it relates to social justice. Let me, let me give you a couple examples and then propose to you a that we take a different posture. 
guy named Thomas Skull recently wrote, he said, the devil has effectively enticed many churches to welcome godless ideologies into their environments, and he's done it through the Trojan horse of what is called social justice. I just disagree. I don't see a Trojan horse, but I know my dad owns a set of stables, and I know that in those stables, he's got his own horses that are called justice, and they run swiftly and beautifully, and he would want for us to ride those horses out into our culture, talking about grace and justice and mercy. I just don't see a Trojan horse, but I see my dad's stables full of beautiful horses, all named justice. Another voice, uh, Owen Strawn, uh, he's got a book coming out. It's entitled Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and How to Stop It. And then a man I deeply respect. In fact, I introduced this man at a conference one time. I had a pleasure to meet him and introduce him. So I just want to preface this by saying I have nothing but respect for this man. I'll say, say something else in a minute. Uh, Vadi Bakum recently said, you should be thoroughly ashamed to ever again employ the term social justice. Now again, based on what I've already communicated to you, you understand that I probably take a different perspective on that. But let me just again speak to, to, to Vodi real quick. Godly man, loves the word deeply, cares deeply about our dad's reputation, cares deeply that, our, that churches would be on mission. He's been faithful for 30 years longer than us, 20 years longer than I have. He's, a, he's an older man, faithful to his family, faithful to Jesus, nothing but respect for the man. I just respectfully disagree with that position, right? I respectfully uh, disagree. And if he were here, he's much smarter than I am. He would crush me in a debate and just be so engaging with you guys. But I disagree with this statement. And I want to caution our family against alarmism. Alarmism does not become the gospel. It doesn't adorn a gospel family well. It's not the way that we should be clothed. And while I want to urge us against alarmism, what I want to push us towards is that we would be opportunists, which sounds really selfish, but that's not how I mean it. And here, here's what I mean. Let's be opportunists. Whose river are we talking about right now? This is our river, and it is a beautiful river. It's muddy right now. I got it. The water's really dirty, but it's still our river. So we define our terms, and we press out what, but what an incredible opportunity for confession, personal confession, and conversation. Uh, here's what I mean by confession. Maybe as we learn about biblical justice, we learn that I... I don't know as much about biblical justice as really I should. I can't even describe the river. I can describe what we're against, but I can't describe our beautiful river. Maybe I've been passive. Maybe I've been disengaged. Maybe I myself have not been just. I'm just saying, I'm sure there are things that we need to confess. I have them, and I'm sure you have them. So it's an opportunity for confession. Because listen, why is there such a loud voice in the culture right now about justice? Maybe because for the last 150 years in our own culture, the church has been so silent as it relates to justice, or maybe in the practices of churches in America, there's been so much injustice that anything we have to say about justice is just discredited anyway. We got some confession to do. But conversation, yo, our friends, our neighbors are hearing nonstop in social media and the news and in personal conversations, justice, justice, justice. Whose river is it? That's our river. These are our waters. Guys, our culture is recognizing the brokenness that we live in. Our culture is seeing the injustice. They're trying to articulate it. And guys, let's just be gentle. God's not the starting point. So their words will be different. Their solutions will be different. Okay, we can, we can swim in muddy water. It's all right. They see brokenness and injustice good. They see that our world is a desert wasteland. They're trying to figure out why. And I have nothing but respect for people who don't yet know Jesus the way that we know Jesus, who are trying to have this conversation. What, let's not be disrespectful with, with those with whom we disagree. Nothing but respect for people who see injustice and try to work justice. We know why there's injustice. We know what brings about justice. These are our waters 
And if we will embrace both gospel proclamation and gospel culture, a river of biblical justice can flow into the desert wasteland of your neighborhood and your unit, and it will be a beautiful, thirst-quenching, life-giving, redemptive, and restorative flow because that's our dad's river, and it brings life wherever it goes. Guys, justice is primary for our father's family. It's not just primary. It's meant to be personally formative. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Again, it says, son, you go receive instruction. So that's personal. That's our dad looking every one of you in the eyes, getting your ear and saying, I need you to go, and you receive instruction on justice and equity. This is how you grow up into the image of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9. Son, you, you go get understanding. You go understand righteousness. You understand justice. You understand equity. So this isn't just for our family. This is for you and for me personally. Our dad is commanding us that we would do this. So you see a progression here. Son, go to school. Son, graduate. Daughter, practice justice. Daughter, teach justice. Model it. So learn, teach, live, model Swim in the river. I watched a talk on Friday, um, knowing that I would disagree, but just I really I need to hear all the perspectives. We need to hear the perspectives. Um, the talk title was Biblical Justice versus Social Justice. But the title was a little misleading because there was 55 minutes of what social justice is and how it's bad and antithetical to the gospel, but only about three to four minutes of what biblical justice is. And I just remember walking away from the talk feeling sad because it was clear what we should be, in this person's opinion, what we should be against as followers of Jesus when it comes to justice. But at the end of the talk, I had no idea what we as our father's family should be for. So all I heard in terms of justice was, oh, we know this term, drain the swamp, right? I just heard swamp, I just heard quagmire, I just heard something you can't get out of and it's dirty and sticky and we have no business there and no talk of a beautiful river of justice flowing through the desert wasteland of our culture. In fact, I was so disheartened because in this talk, the gentleman said multiple times, he said, equity has nothing to do with the gospel. Equity only belongs to social justice in our culture. It is antithetical to the gospel. And I'm like, I've just spent the week in Proverbs seeing equity, 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 equity. And I'm like, that's our word. He's like, no, only in the culture that doesn't care about God would we care about starting points and outcomes. I'm like, dad says, I care about equity. I care about outcomes. I care about starting points. And I care about the discrepancies behind them. I care So I came away from that talk. I'm like, man, I need somebody to show me the beautiful river. And guys, Proverbs shows us the beautiful river of justice. And all through Proverbs, the water spills up over the bank. So what are we for? Here we go. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And we know what sacrifice is. That was a word for their worship. So you're like, wait, I thought worship was really important to God. Yeah, it is. Very little that's more important than that. But what does our dad say? More acceptable. So without stating it negatively, let's just state it positively. If Monday through Saturday, I don't care about justice, don't love justice, I don't do mercy, I'm not walking humbly before my God, I'm not loving him by loving those around me, I'm not showing empathy, all these things. If justice is of no concern to me, if an injustice is of no concern to me, Sunday means nothing. Worse, it... Not only does it mean nothing, it's a stench in our dad's nose. That, I mean, that's, that's what he's saying right there. It matters. It's more acceptable. Here's my favorite, 2115. Love this. Dad says, when justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Okay, so who are the righteous? We're the righteous, not because we're perfect. None of you have a righteousness of your own, Right? It's called an alien righteousness in theology. Why is it alien? Because it's foreign to you. You got nothing. You're unjust. You're systemically unjust. We'll talk about that later. You need somebody else's righteousness or justice. You get it from Jesus. That's why it's alien, okay? But now you're the righteous one, even though you're still really messed up, okay? Our father views, I'm messed up. I'm not, like, we're all messed up. Our father's like, you're just because of what Jesus has done for you, okay? 
So when justice is done, it's a joy to our family. So we could state that negatively. When injustice is done, it's a sorrow. It causes us to sorrow. Our family expresses joy over justice, sorrow over any injustice. Now, I'm a sports guy, so I always think of like sport analogies. Sorry, but it works for me. Full stadium, baseball's coming. Football won't be too far behind it. You ever been in a stadium with like 40, 50,000 people? You been there? And I love this for dudes who are like emotionless in any other setting. Like we can spill all of our passion out as part of a crowd when we're watching our favorite sports teams. Crazy, right? Anyway, you've been in the stadium when something awesome happens. And what happens? The place just comes to life. It's just joy. It's loud. You're hugging and chest bumping and all these things with people you don't even know, right? Like pre-COVID, post-COVID. That was life. We're almost there. Almost there. What about the sorrow? So I'm a Bills fan, mostly sorrow. <laughs> Grown men crying, sitting down. You've been at the end of a game, a painful loss, and what's the energy in the stadium? Gone. 40,000 lifeless people. You could hear a pin drop. Sports, guys, but just sorrow. That's what our dad's saying. Our hearts have been so changed that when we see justice being done in our neighborhood, we love it and we cheer it and we're full of joy. But on the contrary, when we see injustice, we sorrow, we show empathy. We don't try to tell somebody that their lived experience is invalid and that's not really injustice, it's just your blah, 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 blah. That's not gospel. We sorrow, it's a beautiful river. Joy when there's justice and sorrowing when there's injustice. Guys, that's our family, personally formative. Recently, terms like social justice warrior and woke have become insults that we use pejoratively to denigrate other Christians that we think have shifted too far left for the gospel. Can I just ask why we do that? If our dad just said he values joy for justice and sorrow for injustice, wouldn't we be cheering when somebody seems to be awake now to injustice? I think so. What, wouldn't we be cheering when we see newfound passion that justice is done in our communities? I think so. It's a beautiful river. So fam, just again, as we talk about gospel-shaped posture, let's not use terms like that to denigrate people who may use vocabulary or show greater passion than we do for certain aspects of justice in our communities. 28.5, Proverbs 28.5 says, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it. What? Yo, completely. Full admission, I don't understand biblical justice completely. Bible college, seminary, preaching for a lot of years now. It's a blind spot for me. It's an area of growth for me. I don't understand it completely. That word complete is our dad saying, I want you to be formed by this. I want, you to, I want it to be in your soul. I want you to be able to close your eyes, John, and describe my river of justice like the backyard where you grew up. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where's the favorite place you've ever been, ever in your life, ever, most life-giving place? Got it? Okay, now I want you to close your eyes, and I'm gonna hand the wireless mic to somebody, and you're gonna describe it. And you know what's going to happen when you describe it? Now stop freaking out. I'm not going to hand the mic to anybody. <laughs> but if I were to do that, what would happen? We would hear a story. And every one of us with our eyes closed would immediately be in the same place. I'd tell you my story and you'd see the blue skies in Vermont. You'd feel the summer breeze. You'd see the big puffy white clouds. You'd be barefoot just like me and your feet would feel the grass. You'd feel the joy of a young boy just running free with so few restrictions in the early ages in rural Vermont. All the good things, you'd feel them and you'd be there with me. Guys, when our dad says, I want you to understand justice completely, that's what he's saying. He's saying, this river's so beautiful, I want you to be able to close your eyes and take other people there to see this river and feel the water spilling up over the banks can we do that? That's what we got to do. That's what our dad wants us to do. Justice should be formative for us personally. And finally, justice is to be publicly pursued. And I use that word finally loosely, just to be just with you. Okay, I'm going to 
practice a little injustice here and keep going. 29.7 says a righteous man, so this is justice pursued now. A righteous man does what? Knows the rights of the poor. Do we know the rights of the poor? Would we know when the rights of the poor are being violated? A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Guys, this is our dad saying there should be a knowledge leading to action that we would be so well acquainted with what, with the rights in whatever context we live in. It's going to be different, right? There's not universal application here. It's going to be different for a Christian living in China than it is for a Christian living in small town USA or here in Okinawa, right? So we've got to contextualize, but the principle remains the same. We know these things. And then maybe the most potent verse for justice pursued, chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. This should be convicting to some of us. Open your mouth. Open your mouth for the mute, for the one that doesn't have a voice. Open your mouth for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. You defend the rights of the poor and needy in your neighborhood. Whose responsibility is it? Ours. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever God has given you influence, you do that. The poor and needy, there's a term used collectively for any person who is, or a group of people who are oppressed of low status or of no political clout or power. We can easily identify people groups like that in our own country. Easy. Now, some of you push back. You're like, John, you're not doing faithful exegesis here. Like, I know Proverbs 31. Before you get to the women part, like, you know, Proverbs 31 is always like, that's the Mother's Day sermon or whatever. Make you all feel guilty. Before that one, though, there's a little piece where it's actually a mom, right? Talking to her son. Yeah, you see it in the text. And that son's actually growing up to be a king. Like that's, so there's some kingly stuff going on here, right? So like, John, we're not kings. Fair. We're not kings. I'll give you that. But our family represents the only just king there ever will be, and we represent his kingdom. You want to talk about a beautiful river? That is our kingly application. It was one way where we, we are carried downstream in this life-giving water of justice, and we practice these things wherever we live. We represent the only just king in his kingdom in this desert wasteland of a world. That's beautiful. That's what we're for. Historians tell about a dude, I'm going to slaughter his name, just demonstrate to you one more time that I was not classically educated. But uh, Telemachus, you can Google it later. Here's an original photo. He was a Christian that felt called by God to go to Rome at the height of the Roman Empire. And when he arrived, he was shocked, historians say, and he was horrified at what he saw. Slaves being thrown to the lions at the gladiatorial arenas before they were torn apart limb from limb. At the sight of the spectacle, he threw himself in the midst of a fight, waving his arms and pleading with the people to stop the madness. The crowd kept jeering and laughing at him until he was impaled by a gladiator. And with his last dying breath gurgling up blood, he again pleaded for them to stop the fight. And one version of the story goes like this. As the last breath escaped his mouth, the crowd went silent. And one by one, they left the stadium. Not long afterward, a couple of years, the Roman government finally decided to outlaw the gladiatorial fights once and for all. One writer wrote of this man and said, his death turned the hearts of the people. And he says that's what Christianity should be, a prophetic voice in our society that advocates for those that don't have the power to speak up for themselves and to do so in a way that mirrors the sacrificial love of our Savior. Guys, it was Jesus' death that turned the heart of his people. And it will be your death, maybe not physical, but a choice to die to your well-being, to live for the good of others that will, maybe after your death, turn the hearts of people. Back to Pastor T, Pastor Teddy Bear, he said, um, he says, fam, listen, there needs to be a movement for justice in our churches, a movement that combines evangel and ethics. So gospel announcement and gospel gospel-shaped living, okay? Evangel, good news, and ethics. 
proclamation and practice, doctrine and duty. There needs to be an organized investment in teaching Christians and churches to apply what we learn to every area of life so that we more consistently and faithfully bear witness to the character and work of God in this world. I mean, that's what we just read in Proverbs 1 and 2, right? You go get instruction. You go learn this. And he goes, I actually think most everyone agrees with this most basic need. And so given that, it would be good to stop the recriminations, the accusations, the way that we treat, or the way that we speak of people that disagree with us about words and so forth, and that we get on with constructively pursuing evangel and ethic, good news and good work. And I would just add to what he said, if we were actually busy loving mercy and doing justice and walking humbly with our God, if we were busy doing justice, we wouldn't have time to debate justice. But what do we do? We just debate justice. Maybe because we're not practicing it. If I had to summarize, so to wrap it up, he talked about ethics and evangel. Let me just hit ethics first. Here are five that I would pro propose to you from Proverbs, just action steps that we can take today and this week. Learn, live, lead, lend your voice, and love. Learn. Am I actually obeying my dad by working to learn about biblical justice? Can you close your eyes and describe the beautiful river of justice that should be flowing through the desert wasteland? That's number one. Learn it. We get what we're against. Got it. What are we for? Number two, live. Am I actually practicing justice? It's one thing to talk about it, but in, the, in private when nobody can see me and it's just me and the internet or me and my finances or me and my relationships or me and my thoughts about persons of other ethnicities or races, um, am I practicing justice? Lead. Am I using the influence God has given me for justice and equity? Look, some circles of Christianity, some of you are concerned because you're like, man, people add justice to the gospel. No, 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 no. We're just asking, the, our father's asking that the gospel would shape how we live so that we're living justly. You don't need to go find a place to be just. There are crises all over the world. You be just where you are. God has given you influence in a home, in a neighborhood, in a unit. You exercise justice there. So am I using my influence God has given me for justice and equity? Lending my voice. This is really relevant to the, we work in hierarchies, all of us do. Many of you have influence. You see where injustice and inequity exist. Are you willing at cost to yourself to lend your voice and open your mouth when you see injustice? And finally, love. Do I love those who talk about justice differently than I do? Guys, within our own family, do you love, really love those who talk about this differently than you do? Do you love those who are uncomfortable using the term social justice? Do you love those who just talk about it all the time? Do you love them? Are you gentle and kind? What about our non-Christian friends? I mean, we get it, right? Different starting points, different solutions, different vocabulary. Why, why is it threatening to us to swim in muddy water? We have no enemies out there. You don't have, we don't have an enemy out there. There are image bearers of Jesus that he calls us to love and ready, lay down your life for. Are we loving them? So that's ethic. And let me just wrap it up with evangel. Proverbs 29, 26 says, many seek the face of a ruler but it is from the Lord that man gets justice. Guys, that's our hope right there. Jesus, not politics, not the current or next president, not the law, not other people, Jesus. And so we pray, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is when the river of justice will truly flow through our desert wasteland. But then... Given the, we can get that back up till we're done. The confidence that Jesus is going to give justice, we work knowing he's going to bring it about. So we work with confidence because he gives the justice. Wherever he places us, gospel proclamation, participating in the life of a church, which is the counterculture, and working towards justice wherever he places me. Simple. From the Lord, a man gets justice. Let me leave you with this question. Why does injustice exist in our world? Why? It's not because of a broken system. It's not because of a, a systemic, systemically unjust structure. Injustice exists in this world because injustice resides deeply in your heart and my heart. That's why systems are broken and that's why structures are unjust. Those are the secondary. The primary need right now is to address the injustice that our Father says exists in our hearts. We are the guilty ones. We are all guilty of injustice against the God who created us and against our fellow image bearers, every one of us. Jesus is the only perfectly just one. 
ever. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took justice in my place. I deserved punishment. Jesus took it and he gave me his justice. That's your only hope. You can't make yourself a just man. You can't make yourself a just woman. And apart from Jesus, we can't bring real justice into this world. Jesus alone can make your heart just. Jesus alone can bring about justice in this world the way that it is needed. So this morning, as we've done, Grant's going to come now. And uh, we do this every week, so it's not new to us. It's just a moment for us to reflect and, and, and confess and repent and thank God for his grace. Look, can we just be honest with our dad? Let's be honest. And Grant's going to help us uh, be honest now and find mercy.